Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to On The Slab, the movie autopsy podcast, where we take a movie, put it on the slab, cut it open, and see what it makes it tick. Tonight's dissection is going to take place in four parts. We're going to have our time of death, which is the context in which this movie exists, both what came around the time of it and our personal history and, you know, connection to that movie. Secondly, we're going to have our preliminary examination, where we look at the subject and we say, what happened? What is this movie? What, you know, makes it tick? What happens in this movie? It's going to be a brief little summary for you guys. And thirdly, we're going to have our initial incisions, where we go along the surface and we see what worked, what did, what did we like, what did we hate, and, you know, mechanically how this movie kind of put itself together. Lastly, we're going to have our cause of death, which is going to be a more deep analysis of the kind of thematics of the movie, the legacy it leaves, the history it draws upon, the influences both to and from it, and just kind of our crazy oddball theories or just wild tangents. It's kind of where we go off the rails. Anyways, this was a really fun one to record. We both have a deep love for this movie and we were really excited to do it. So enjoy. So, alright, so tonight we're going to be talking about The Rock, the 1996 Michael Bay film starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage, and Ed Harris. Can't forget Ed Harris. So, Annie, why don't you tell us a little bit about this movie? Oh god, you're going to make me do the summary? No, this isn't the summary. This is, just tell me a little bit just about your context a little bit about it, about my context for it? Yeah. Oh god. I remember Because you're the, you're the right one now. who suggested we did this. You're I did. We do this one. I did. So you got to start us off. Okay. Well, I can do that. Um, now that I actually know what's going on. Time of death. Uh, yeah, because I did suggest this, and part of the reason why I suggested it was because I have a great love for this film. Uh, I think that it's. A hilarious, brotastic fest, but I think it's pretty amazing. Um, this was something that I saw, I've seen multiple times, actually. It's from 1996, and I've seen it a lot on TV. I think my family had a DVD of it at one point, and it's just, it's also from this peak Nicolas Cage period, before he went, like, totally... Woo! Yeah, <laughs> so... So, uh, yeah, that's why I recommended it. I recommended it because I really like it. It's enjoyable. And also, a lot of people have seen it. How about you, though? Why were you interested in watching this? This is one of my favorite <laughs> movies of all time. Uh, now, you said we got to do The Rock, and I got to say, oh, you want to hear me gush for an hour? Okay, let's go. Let's I'm open go. To that. <laughs> but, yeah, no, but I, I had this on. I actually don't remember anymore if I had it on DVD or if I had it on VHS, uh, but I had it on yeah. something, and I watched this movie a lot. I think it was DVD, because I don't remember rewinding it, but I could be wrong. I've been wrong about a great many things. And this is kind of my favorite confluence of a lot of things. You've got a fantastic Ed Harris performance. 
You've got Sean Connery, who my brother was named after Sean Was he Connery. really? He was almost Harrison. <laughs> yes, oh, he was. Yeah. And Nick Cage, you know, before he kind of got a little crazy. So, like, this is just, it's fantastic in everybody. And it's actually one of my most early cinematic memories. Because I remember the shower scene. that I remember that before I even knew what this movie was. Just that, cease fire! Cease fire! And I think that really shocked me because it was, like, the first time, like, violence was bad in a movie and so like this is kind of really formative for me and i actually hadn't watched it in a couple of years but i used like i said i used to have it on tape somehow and i used to watch it all the time it's one of my favorites so i am so excited to get into this awesome. how about you okay yeah i mean i think most of what i remember about this was that this movie kind of introduced me to my love of cars so that was like there's a ferrari i think it's an f-355 in it which is just like gorgeous but they, what can you say? You know, Michael Bay really knows what he's doing when it comes to cars. Preliminary examination. Okay. So, Sylvia, since you have such a great love of The Rock, can you go ahead and summarize that for us? Gladly. Okay, so... We open on Ed Harris being very sad in the rain. He's a military man, and he ain't crying. He's in the rain, goddammit. And he's talking to his dead wife and saying there's something he's got to do, and he couldn't do it while she was around. So he leaves off, and he takes a team of men to a weapons depot and non-lethally knocks out all the guards, takes over, and steals VX gas warheads and a bunch of missiles. One of his men dies in the attempt. They seal him in the room, and his skin starts melting off, and it's horrifying. Cut to FBI headquarters. Nicholas Cage is Stan... Is it Stanley? Yeah, Stanley Goodspeed. Sorry, I was getting confused with Stanley Ipkiss for a second. I just had to make sure. You know, Stanley Goodspeed, chemical weapons nerd, playing with Nerf guns in the office. Very prescient. That's, this is before Think Geek, funnily enough. He's also a biochemist, Anyways. too, which explains a lot of stuff that goes on in the movie, <laughs> which we can come back to. So, uh, he has a bad day at the office where some terrorists try to send him some bombs. Well, not bombs. It's a bomb and a chemical weapon. And they have to show off how he's so technically excellent. And he diffuses the bomb, tells everyone else to get out of the building, and so on. So, he has a stressful day. At which point, after we go to that, General Hummel, Ed Harris takes a team of ex-marines and invades and takes over Alcatraz during a tour. They take 81 civilians as hostages, and they actually utilize the tour to get them into their cells. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, there's the tour guide, Ranger Bob, you know, ladies and gentlemen, get your I invite you to be prisoners of Alcatraz, temporarily, of course. And then they just walk up behind him and throw him in the cell as well. So, General Hummel calls up the Pentagon, calls up uh, no, he calls up the head of the FBI, I think. Walmack? He does, he does. And he says, all right, I have 81 hostages on Alcatraz. I have VX gas rockets pointed at San Francisco Bay. I want $100 million. Bye-bye. Bloop. And it's explained that what he wants that for is there are 83 men who have died under his command through various black ops or other non-listed uh, military operations, and they have been denied military burial, they have not been recompensated, no medals have been awarded. So he wants $83 million to pay for restorations to, not restor reparations to their families. 
and the rest is for his personal use, and also paying off his men because, you know, they're criminals now. So, they take over. There's a bunch of hubbub. They say uh, VX gas is specifically designed to resist the standard countermeasure for a chemical weapon of this sort. It needs to burn hotter than napalm does. So, they enlist the aid of John Mason, who is Sean Connery. And what he is, is a English SAS operative who stole secret files back in the 60s and has been locked up in prison ever since. They bring, they bring him out. The FBI director has a bit of a grudge, a bit of a history with him. And he's like, watch this guy. You got to watch this guy. And everyone else is like, you know, no, he can help us. We, we need this. We've got 48 hours. Let's go. So uh, they pull him out of prison. They give him an interview. He takes a coin, cuts a hole in the window, smashes it, and says, Whoa, Mac! <laughs> it's that's great. I love that scene. Part. It's actually my favorite part. Oh, no, that's fantastic. And he is the quintessential escape artist. He actually manages... He breaks... He, he, that's not an escape attempt. He just breaks the typical... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Interrogation room yeah. window just to look at the guy who's actually behind it. Then he goes to a penthouse suite. He gets a shower and a shave, and he gets a haircut. By the way, I have to say, I really love Sean Connery with the Billy Connolly hair. It's not quite Connolly. It's not curly enough, but it's almost there. So he does that. He orders room service to distract the guards. And then he throws Director Walmack over the side of the hotel, hanging from a shower cord. He escapes, steals a Hummer, has a badass drive uh, car chase through town. Meanwhile, he's discovered, huh, cell phones are a thing, calls up information, gets information on his daughter, and meets up with her. Meantime, Stanley Goodspeed has stolen a Ferrari and done the exact same thing because all the police cruisers are... And by the way, I love this. I know I'm going into a little bit too much here, but they're all doing those little Blues Brothers jumps all the time because it's San Francisco and it's incredible. So, you know, he uh, Mason is hitting everything possible to leave roadblocks behind him and he gets away from them. But Goodspeed manages to keep up. He, actually, no, he does lose him. But he does manage to find the information about the next of kin. And he follows her to a meeting with her dad. They pick him up, and then they get ready for the military operation. So, they drop in a team, which is basically SEAL Team 6. It's a team of Navy SEALs. They go in. Mason leads them through the belly of Alcatraz to the showers, which is their entry point. However... The countermeasures that the Hummels men have are unorthodox there. Instead of having a laser trip, which is what they see, there's actually a tumbler that will recognize vibrations. So, they are surrounded uh, from an elevated position. There is a very dramatic standoff where the commander of the mission has to tell General Hummel that he cannot tell his men to stand down. There's a big firefight. Some of the men are overeager. In particular, there is... Uh, Captains Fry and Captain Darrow, who are played by Gregory Sporlitter and Tony Todd specifically. They're kind of the rogue element within Hummel's otherwise crisp operation, and that's going to be important later. So they push some bricks over. The stalemate is broken. There's a bloodbath. All of the SEAL team is dead, except for Mason and Goodspeed. They escape into the tunnels. They are presumed dead until the initial examination shows, ah, oh, this guy's radio and gun are missing, whatever. So, while that's all going on, they get flushed out with explosives. They manage to find the morgue and kill two guys, unplug all the explosives, 
unplug all of the chips from the VX warheads. There are three remaining at this point. But uh, they managed to defuse them, and Stanley gets to explain how dangerous VX gas is. You know, just this tiny little bit will kill you, you'll puke out your guts while your skin melts and you convulse so hard you break your back. Really scary, nasty stuff. So, that being said, they get captured, they manage to defuse one more. At this point, we have two missiles left. They escape from prison again. Mason does his little cloth rope grappling hook pull the lever trick, which is kind of cool. And meanwhile, they fire, they reach the deadline while the president has kind of in the final phases of authorizing a thermite strike to, you know, kill the civilians and blanket the entire island to contain the threat. Kind of grim. So they, es they escape prison. They move around through it. Mason says, you know what? I, I saw it in his eyes. I had a face-to-face -face confrontation with Hommel. He's not going to kill 70,000 people. So fuck it. I'm leaving. I'm not going to die on this rock. Uh, Stanley says, yeah, I got a job to do. So I'm going to go in there. He gets a gun pointed at his face. Mason comes back to save him. They disarm one of the rockets. Uh, the, they reach the deadline. Hummel fires one of the rockets, but he is unwilling to actually kill all these people. You have a dramatic shot where it flies over a stadium where there's a game going on. I presume football, I think. And he instead crashes into the ocean. So, at this point, there is a mutiny where, again, Captains Fry and Darrow say, I want my fucking money, which is an interesting logical inconsistency because at this point, there is no way to get the money. They've, they've, they've already called their bluff. They, they, just, they just want to cause some havoc at this point. So, there's a mutiny. They shoot Hummel. And I'm trying to remember what Mason does at this point, but he kind of fucks off for a little while and meets up later. Oh, right, no, he's engaged in a firefight. That's why. He's stuck with there with Fry while Darrow heads over to the lighthouse, and so does Goodspeed. They have a little dramatic, like, dance around the missile. He's holding up, uh, Stanley's holding up the VX gas, says, do you know how this shit works? Do you know how this shit works? You know, he's waving around a knife. And then we get this great little one-liner. It's like, oh, do you like me? Do you like uh, Elton John's Rocket Man? I don't listen to soft shit. Oh, because cause that's you. You're the Rocket Man. And he fires the rocket, which pushes him out the window onto a fence post. It's great. At this point, uh, there's another dramatic little fight. Uh, they shove the ball of gas and poison into the other guy's mouth. Stanley stabs himself in the heart with an atrophine needle. Holds up the flares, but it's just a second too late. They do manage to leave off one bomb, but everyone survives. Everyone's okay. And Stanley says, yeah, Mason's dead. He's totally dead, guys. Wink, wink. Anyways, Mason, get the hell out of here. Uh, he claims that Mason's body has been vaporized. Meanwhile, Mason gave him the address and location of the secret microfilm he stole 30 years ago. And our epilogue is he's on his honeymoon with his girlfriend, and they're in that church, they're being run out, and he's looking at the little microphone saying, Hey honey, you wanna know who really killed JFK? And th that's our movie. How'd I do? Awesome. Awesome. I don't think I have anything to add to that. I think that was a perfect summary. Now we begin the initial incision. Okay, so, Annie. What do you think? What, what what did you like about this movie? Let's start let's start there cuz I we were both talking about how we were like really fond of this movie. So what makes you fond of this movie? Oh man, I just have so much affection for this. 
Uh, I think in part it's because it is so over the top. So um, The Rock was made just a year after Michael Bay had completed shooting um, Bad Boys, the first movie, which a lot of people were kind of like, well, how the hell are you going to top making Bad Boys? Which we all know that Bad Boys went on to become kind of like a cool franchise with the sequel, which is obviously better than the first one. Um, and how he did what it was to do? cast basically a whole bunch of um, semi-famous actors and then to have Sean Connery, who was super, super famous, helm the movie with a young actor who had been known to do a lot of comedic films, namely Nicolas Cage. So this is actually as crazy and over the top as this is. Um, this is actually kind of a significant film in terms of film history, especially when you're looking at the work of Michael Bay. So that's part of what I like about it is that it's significant to film history. Another thing I like is that it's just fucking crazy. Like there's just all this crazy shit going on. Um, also, I love that the I don't I have never seen BX Gas, but I'm assuming that it doesn't look like Flubber, like it kind of does um, in the canister no, that Nicolas no, Cage no. has. He's also playing, I think, a, a biochemist. And knowing a lot of people who are biochemists, uh, this that felt accurate. <laughs> that was an accurate portrayal um, of how crazy and fun some of them yeah. are. So those were some of the things that I liked. But what was it that you liked about this film? Okay, uh, I'm going to cut aside a little bit for a little little aside. Redundant words, I know. But um, my dad was actually a chemistry PhD, and he did do some work for the military. And he actually said, like, Basically, the you know their portrayal of VX gas was not was accurate as to kind of the lethality and yeah. how crazy scary it is, but not quite in the level of what it actually does or the visual presentation of it. But like that's a cool little thing. Anyways, my favorite thing, my absolute favorite thing about this movie is Ed Harris, and first of all, he does have a fantastic performance, but also like again, it's formative for me. This is the first villain in my mind who had a compelling and understandable and empathetic reason to be yep. doing what he's doing. He is doing bad things for good reasons. And he has this pained, distant expression the entire time. It is amazing. It's fantastic. He, like, you know, when he's shouting down to the commander in the pit, in the showers, you know, I will not repeat that order! Like, he's not saying that, she's not shouting out of anger. He's shouting yeah. trying to save this man. He's trying to say, like, you don't have to die. That scene is, there's a reason that's one of my early cinematic memories, because that is such a compelling scene. And honestly, here's the thing. Michael Bay does all of his camera rotations, his famous circular pans, but they work so well in this movie. They do. So, you know, yeah. And actually, you know what? Just to extend the point a little bit to the cast, the entire cast is fantastic. You've got a lot of actors who I really like in kind of in the prime of their career before they get to the phase where, oh, uh, you know, Sean Connery before he was Sean, you know, firm but gentle slap Connery. And you have Nicolas Cage before he was Nicolas Cage. <laughs> you know, it, it's yeah. just, it's a fantastic cast. They're all fun and good. And I, I, I just love seeing them work together. 
Yeah, Let's whoever casted this was just whoever casted this. First of all, was just genius. Um, I think you and I had talked about the fact that Tony Todd is in this. Tony Todd, uh, for those who don't know, played Candyman, so that was kind of cool too. So yes, the casting is very much a highlight for me. I'm also going to second this idea about Ed Harris because I think that this movie sets a really good precedent for action movies, which I don't know is necessarily followed. Um, so in other films coming from the late 90s and early 2000s, we have villains who are kind of like crazed, like what you see in Speed. Um, we also have the kind of like hyper-capitalist villain that you see in the Die Hard movies. Um, they're like a hyper-capitalist who has sort of like a mercenary army behind them. Um, what's interesting about Harris's villain is that he is complicated, and this kind of gives The Rock a bit of a tragic... Uh, bent to it because you do get the feeling that this guy is trying to do good for others. He's trying to do the right thing. And that's actually part of where the conflict in this movie comes from is two separate parties attempting to do the right thing. In Ed Harris's case, doing the right thing the wrong way with the wrong actions. Um, and that just kind of sets off this entire film. So yeah, I'd say casting choices and also knowing how to write a villain who's complicated is great. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have one thing I want to add because I'm not sure where else this is going to fit in. Yeah. But I want to call attention to a particular shot because I love this shot. Um, actually, two shots. One, uh, the opening shots where you see him in the rain and he's putting on his uniform in the mirror. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is exactly about that shot, but in that shot, his garb feels almost like a preacher's vestments. You know, he's kind of leader of the flock who's going astray, and that's kind of cool. Yeah. But I want to call attention in particular to the shot where Harris dies up against the wall. And that is a yeah. fantastic shot. His eyes are this striking blue, he's up against a white tile wall, and his blood is just this bright sure. crimson, and yeah. it's just... Beautiful. And you can see you can see him die, basically. He's still and tragic and horrified at the violence he's unleashed. So that is just he's a fantastic villain. And that shot is beautifully composed. He slumps over, he bleeds from the mouth. Just wonderful stuff. Yeah. So I actually want to bring up some complaints because I can gush about this movie all day, but I do want to be at least a little bit critical. Feel free. Uh <laughs> one thing and this is 1996. It's very much a macho movie. There's not really very much female involvement. No. <laughs> but there's two, two, two particular things I want to call to. Yeah. One, his relationship with... Mason's relationship with his daughter is just kind of awkward. Yeah. And I feel like she's only important because Mason decides she is. Because he doesn't have a relationship with her. He has nothing. And it's, it, it's sentimentality on his part. And she's she's actually kind of scared of him, which I, I kind of like. But just that whole part is not really that well integrated into the story. Mm. And the second thing I want to point out is Barbara Hummel's headstone. Mm. The first thing on it, the very top of the headstone says, his wife. Yep. <laughs> which is kind of terrible in, in terms of like looking at this as a representation of how things would be. As a narrative, that's kind of terrible. But at the same time, it's kind of brilliant from a filmmaking perspective because that it tells you explicitly in universe who she is without giving you time to think about it. You don't wonder. You don't 
think about it, you just see it. And it's kind of subconscious. Like I said, this is a kind of a critical read. This is something I never picked up watching it, like, I don't know, 20 times as a kid. Yeah. So it's not too egregious as an individual thing, but it's an interesting... It's interesting to look at. It is, and I think it, that shot... Because I also found that I was like, great, <laughs> the bro movie. Um, I think, too, that that just kind of tells you, okay, this film is dealing with archetypes. So that's what the main play of this film is about. So when I was able to kind of think about it that way, I saw it as two heroes versus one another versus having a hero in kind of like, you know, like the classic James Bond, I'm evil because I'm evil type villain. So even oh, yeah. her character is the dead wife. Like, that's an archetype as well. And the child, the daughter is kind of like a weird archetype in 1990s action films, too. Like, there becomes this period of time where people are doing films that are about um, how dads relate to daughters and stuff like that. It's, it's really kind of fascinating. I hope somebody does a history on that at some point. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I do want to go back also to, because I realized I did miss one important female character, which is oh, Stanley's fiance. Yes. Claire Frohlani. And I actually like her. She, her. Her part is very small, yeah. but she is very progressive. She she proposes to him. Yeah. And like, like I said, her role is small, but what little we do see of it is very likable. Yeah. Yeah, she seems like a, kind of like a take charge woman sort of makes sense in the in the storyline that we're given absolutely so give us another high point let's, let's go back to the that. scene where sean connery's hair is getting combed <laughs> <laughs> i so don't good. know why but that's the specific thing that i'm thinking of because it's just sean connery sitting there and he's got all this long hair and there's a i think it's there's a is it a woman no it's a guy who is um combing his hair there's just something about it because sean connery is kind of like doing his little you know like grumbly glint it's a grunge yeah thing. while this person is combing his hair like i'll be beautiful now. actually i did <laughs> i'm glad you brought that up because i actually do want to bring that up as a negative i'm i'm not a fan of the stylist it's very 90s humor it's like oh my god i just care about hair do we have time for a sea scrub like it's it's very gay coded and very like, I still kind of laugh at it a little bit. Not because of gay, because he's a funny character. But, he, like, he's it, a problem, I, I, I feel uncomfortable laughing. Yeah. At he, he is, he is. But, you, you know, like, the, the whole, like, I just, I, I, I didn't see you throw that guy off a building. I just care how you, do you like your haircut? Yes, very much. That's funny. It's just, there's that unfortunate baggage to it. Yeah, and that uh, so kind of I, feels like, uh, sort of like the Hitchcock trope being brought back into where Hitchcock would cast people as essentially gay characters and they weren't supposed to be particularly sympathetic so what were you gonna say yeah uh I don't remember <laughs> oops I did okay. that that's fine that's fine um th that's actually another high point for me is there are so many one-liners uh just you know go back to even the hairdresser gets one this I'm sorry the stylist it's like no scissors. Did you? Did they tell Picasso no brush? Um, you know, it's it's a need to know basis. You didn't need to know. That's classified. Just there's so much stuff. And my, probably my favorite one that I have actually used, even though I feel like I probably shouldn't as much anymore. But you know, you you'll do your best. 
Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Carla was the prom queen. <laughs> was she now? <laughs> it's so it's so good. There's so many like cheesy one-liners and just like that kind of bromance between uh, Mason and Goodspeed is fantastic. And actually, I really like that because what they actually have what starts ma- what starts them from actually relating what starts them actually relating to each other is actually their love of literature and higher mm-hmm. learning. Uh, because you know. Mason, it doesn't say whether he was like that before, but he read a lot in prison. He reads, you know, uh, Shakespeare. He reads Sun Tzu and so on. And so Goodspeed, being the nerd, recognizes some of the literary allegories and references he's making in his speech. And so that begins the... that begin That's the first stone in building their relationship of right. trust. And that's actually fantastic. I really like that. There are a ton of one-liners in this movie. There are so I'm many. I'm actually going through the IMDb page and looking at some of the dialogue on here because um, what's interesting about this movie, too, is that um, it really kind of sets, I think I said it sets the precedent for a lot of future action movies, not just in Michael you Bay's did, work, but in a lot of other um, directors' works as well. I mean, I think... Even now, there's a few directors who I've heard recently reference The Rock as kind of like a touchstone for them and their work. So, yeah, kind of like that archetype with the one-liner. I mean, that's that's pretty much classic Michael Bay. Yeah, there's just there's so much here. I, 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 yeah. What were you gonna say? <laughs> there, are, there are so many. No, I, I just wanted to call back to the Rocket Man one yeah. because that was good. And it, it, it really. And here's the thing: it's not just that they're good one-liners. Is that they're good one-liners that work for the actors that they do. Right. You know, Carl, you know, winners go home and fuck the prom queen. That that's very Sean Connery. But then you get the Rocket Man one, which I've referenced previously, but the whole one is like, you know, oh, you know what, I, I feel like we got off on the wrong foot here. Uh Stanley Goodspeed, FBI. Do you like music? Mm-hmm. You know? Uh do, do, do you like Elton John? You know, the Rocket Man. It's like, I don't listen to the soft shit. You know? But, like, that nervous energy is put to really good use This is somebody who knows how to write dialogue for people based on how they speak, which is really sort of cool to watch. Um, I'm actually going to check out who wrote this. Yeah, who did write this? Uh, David Weisberg, Douglas Cook, and Mark Rosner. Those are actually kind of big names from the 90s, late 90s. Yeah, Empire City, Crime Story, Double Jeopardy. Yeah, Double Jeopardy. There it is. Two of them work together on Double Jeopardy. So yeah, these guys these guys have a yeah. history. Well, I think that came after this movie, so. Yeah. They work well together, and apparently they kept doing it, which makes me happy. I mean, if you've got a good thing, you might as well keep going with it, right? Yeah. I think also the music is really pretty great. Um, this was kind of like one of the yeah. first Hans Zimmer uh, creations that really kind of set him off as being like a major composer for action movies. Um, oh, was this? Yeah. Zimmer? Huh, so it yeah, was. Yeah, it's uh, Hans Zimmer, I think. And Nick Glennie Smith. Nick. Smith, not Nick Smith. Glennie Smith. Smith, and then also Harry Gregson Williams, who has done a lot of um, really cool work for action movies as well. Um, the music uh, just works. And. Yeah, it, that's the thing. I can't call it to mind right now, but when I'm hearing, I'm just like, this is right. the rock. It, it, it just sticks it in does. my mind. Yeah, it's like that really punctuated uh, stuff. 
the other thing, another thing I want to call to is I really like how this movie was lit. First of all, you've got that dungeon feeling to the underbelly of Alcatraz that weirdly enough feels almost like an Indiana Jones set. Like if he was raiding like post-industrial ruins, <laughs> if that were even the yeah. You know, because you've got like that cistern, which is like, it's almost like a ritual well that they emerge out of and all that. And you've got these really fun open spaces that are pretty well lit. And they're, they're just really fun. They're, there's, for fuck's sake, there's a minecart chase. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> there is, there is. It's great. But here's the thing, though. Even within that, there's a lot of darkness. And you can see in a lot of shots. And there's actually a lot of really tight shots on people's faces, which I love. There's an intensity to that. And it just scales back and forth with how it does that. But you can see from the pupil dilation that a lot of this is actually shot in really low lighting. And that gives it this kind of wide-eyed bewilderment to this almost. And that's, it's really cool because you've got that openness contrasting with the kind of claustrophobia of the environment they're in. It's a prison. It's in tunnels. It's in cisterns. It's in laundry rooms. You know, it's claustrophobic and almost post-apocalyptic. But you've got like that feeling of being in this open space from that, which I really like. Yeah. And I think you and I have been talking a few minutes ago too. Like it's actually difficult to shoot stuff like this where it's dark. Um, it's, it's hard for the yeah. actors, but also it's really difficult for um, people doing camera work. Like it's hard to set up shots because you have to figure out how do we do the lighting on this and make it look natural. I, I just have so many questions about the lighting for this movie. Like, I know that's really nerdy, but I would yeah, I mean, to ask somebody about it. Didn't, didn't Kubrick famously light a movie with uh, just candles, basically? I think Coppola did that as well. And I think it was for uh, Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula. So, oh, yeah. Bram Stoker's Yeah, we, we do, do have one. to do that one. That, that's um, an interesting yeah, movie. Yeah, peak Keanu. Um, oh, do you know who, um, who else partially wrote the script for this you're gonna like this uh quentin tarantino is an uncredited writer on the rock yeah i i I can can see that i can definitely see that um particularly the rocket man thing um a, a lot of cage's dialogue actually yeah 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 no that i yeah see i didn't even think of that like but now that you say it i feel like an idiot for not yeah um that is cool where are you getting that by the way because that's not on the imdb it is not on the imdb i read that once when i was looking at stuff but i think let me see if i can find it um uh there i mean there's an ign article about this on a board there are um there's an article on mental floss about films that were kind of like punched up by other writers. So there's actually a lot about yeah, this, yeah. which I, I just find that interesting that it's kind of known as a sort of like a Michael Bay film. Um, that's really, really important to his of, and uh, it's, it's got Quentin Tarantino working on it too. That's, there's something kind of fascinating about that. It does explain the broiness. It's just kind of a who's who. It isn't is. It? Yeah. Yeah, but this was, the late 1990s was really kind of like the bro, the bro era. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we probably want to go to some deeper cuts Sure, here, don't we? yeah. Final report, the cause of death. So, Annie, tell me, what, what, what do you think this movie is about? Oh, God. 
Because I've got some theories, but I want to hear your thoughts. Um, jeez. So this is kind of like the late 1990s, and we're sort of coming off of the Gulf War a bit. Um, I know some people have argued that this is a pre-9-11 film. I don't quite understand how that would work. Um, what I see this as being as kind of like a critique of um, people coming home from war, like a, almost a different variation on Rambo. Um, because Rambo is a very direct critique of what's going on during Vietnam. I see The Rock as being kind of a critique of um, what's going on during the Gulf War and during the Bush One years and the Clinton years as well in terms of people's benefits being slashed and just letting people know here are the sorts of sacrifices that somebody makes who is in SEAL Team 6. And that's a very surface-level reading, but that's how I'm reading this film. What was What were you thinking? Yeah. So my thought, actually, is this is kind of about, you know, restraint and order as this kind of futile measure against, like, raw aggression. In particular, I, I think if you want to look at it thematically, I think Mason and Goodspeed are not as important so much as this is kind of a character study of uh, Humble, yeah. uh, Ed Harris' yeah. character. Because... He is the perfect soldier. He is a war hero. He is decorated. He is brave. He is brilliant. And you see at the very beginning of the movie, he is using full restraint. His men are using non-lethal takedowns. They're using darts. They're using stealth and mm. elegance. There's a great shot where there's a guy, you know, standing at a column and he's, you know, decked out in shoe polish just to blend in. And then he comes out and shoots the two guys. You know yeah, what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's a great shot. The, the moment before he leaps into action, he is poised and ready, and it's fantastic. So it's all about this discipline thing. But at the very beginning of the Alcatraz occupation, he says to Fry and to... Hold up. i got to pull up the names again. To Fry and yeah. to Darrow, this is my first time working with you guys. Uh, I hear you, you guys have so far shown lived up to your reputation fantastically and hummel is ultimately in this to make things right he is using military tactics he is using you know criminal activity to try and right a wrong and that bites him in the ass because he's brought on men who he can't fully trust who imbibe this kind of toxic masculinity where it's about the money it's about status it's about, I've given this thing up, reward me. I have made a sacrifice. I do not make it as a sacrifice. I made it as a payment. Which is really interesting because they lose themselves in it. They are still determined to fire the missile after it already becomes impossible for them to extract money out of it. Yeah. Because they have one missile left. They fire that, they kill a bunch of people. There is no reason to pay them. There is no reason to not kill them either. So at that point, it's not about getting their money, even though that's what they say. That's just kind of a rationalization because they want to indulge in their bloodlust. Mm. Okay. Uh, you can even see that in the... I can't remember uh, who was the... The, the Marine... The, Mar the Marine who goes up... No, sorry. The SEAL who goes up the ladder in the... Was it... It wasn't Chris. I can't remember his name. No. It was, no, um... it, it was the, um, it was the Latino guy. Oh, you know yeah. Scarpetti? Was it Scarpetti? But... 
Scarpetti? Um, Jim and... Uh, hold on, let's check this out. I don't have a picture of him. Hold up. Jim Mania... Maniasi? Yeah, let's let's just Google this. We can cut this out because this took longer than it should. Edit. No, nope. that's not him. <laughs> Crap. Okay, let's, let's leave that out. Uh, fuck it. But yeah, you know I do know. You know who I'm talking about. And here's the thing. His, his brethren upstairs are dead. They are all dead and dying. And Stanley says, don't go. And he says, he's got to. And he goes up there, shoots Bradley, and dies. It's all about this indulgence of... Not even, it's not even practicality. It's honor. It's bloodlust. It's a lot of things. But it's about these drives taking over the rational. Whereas Hummel, is, he's, he starts with a drive. He starts with you know retribution. He starts with injustice. And he's trying to force good things to come out of that. But ultimately, when it doesn't work, he's ready to abandon. He's like, hands, my hand, our right. hands are tied. Like, we can't do this. We can't actually go through with this. So everyone abandoned. I'm sorry, but we failed. And the other, the, Fry and Daryl will not accept that. So, you know, yeah. in, in essence, I think it's a failure to contain, you know, I don't want to use the word toxic masculinity to describe it because it's more nuanced than that. But also that's kind of what it is. It's this raging testosterone fueled part of the military industrial complex yeah sort of like a need to contain raw power um one of the things that i think is really interesting about this film too is that instead of simply casting guys who are super cut to play navy seals they got actual navy seals to play navy seals in the film yes they did, they? did. um so uh one of the things that you hear typically in a lot of um visual and uh, literary culture about Navy SEALs. And I'm talking specifically about spy novels. So like the work of Vince Flynn is filled with this and there are tons and tons of other authors. Tom Clancy is also filled with this. It's kind of this narrative of critiquing um, the bureaucracy versus the boots on the ground. So I think that's kind of a bit of what we're seeing there too. And then um, bureaucratic failures to the boots on the ground. So again, yeah, that's kind of like a similar thing. Um, and I think at least one of the production, one of the producers, I think, read something about Vietnam. And that was kind of what, uh, how Hummel's character came into place. So you're right. This is about restraining this kind of toxic masculinity, a kind of raw power. Um and it kind of a play between, okay, what is rational and what is irrational? Because we're seeing a lot of that, right? You have Nick Cage, who has this kind of manic I, energy, mm. um, versus Sean Connery, who kind of balances him out. And then you have the character of Hummel, who is himself playing between rational and irrational. Yes. I actually, I want to take something back, because I'm realizing John C. McKinley is actually doing something here, which oh. is kind of interesting. Because... It's not something about his performance, but about it's about his okay. context within the film. Because David Morse also does this to a certain degree. David Morse and John C. McGinley are there out oh, of yeah. loyalty. They're out of they're there out of obstinately right. good reasons, and they are restrained. And you know, you get Morse has a little bit. He the, the, in a way they're kind of powerless when you compare them to Fry and Darrow, who although they are basically evil, right. they are, you know, bloodthirsty monsters. But they are highly motivated and proactive, whereas everyone else is just kind of waiting to receive orders. Mm. 
So there, there's kind of those two sides of that where it's like, yes, this makes them the villains, but also it makes them active right. actors as opposed to the very, very passive right. John C. McGinley. He's basically invisible in this, and that actually kind of speaks to something. Yep. So do you have any more deep cuts? Because I got one, but I don't want to do two in a row. Um, sheesh. I think... This is not really a deep cut. This is shallow and kind of returning to the hairstylist again for a brief moment. But while we're on the subject of toxic masculinity, um, this is really a movie to me, too, about people who kind of like fail to fit into the model of what masculinity is. And um, the movie is kind of telling us how it wants masculinity to be performed. And that's really sort of evident um, through the fact that they've chosen Navy SEAL culture too, right? Which is read as hyper-masculine um, for, I mean, fairly constructed, although also obvious reasons. Like these guys go overseas, um, they blow shit up, they get the job done and done. Um, they're really pretty incredible individuals um, who are also working as a team. But um, to bring it back to the hairstylist really quickly, uh, so part of the reason why the gay character becomes this sort of object of scorn and humor in film is because he fails to perform the masculinity that the other male characters around him are performing. So this is this film is, to a certain extent, also um, reinforcing what kinds of, quotes gender norms it wants to see in the world. And it, it's kind of telling us that it wants to see Sean Connery's, it wants to see Nick Cage's, um, it wants to see bad boys who can say one-liners to a certain extent, but it also wants people like Hummel, um, who have this really deeply encoded sense of honor um, and duty to their brethren as well. Um, so it's really kind of a fascinating film to talk about gender theory with specific reference to men. That was my take again it, that's a very surface level cut so what was your other insight into this okay well first of all uh john mason is james bond i mean it, 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 it it's one of those fun little pet theories that gets thrown around on the internet every now and then but it really kind of makes a lot of sense he's st he he's obstinately stopped operation he was caught in the 60s oh that's <laughs> a theory okay yeah okay. and he got yeah, no, no. But he, he stole uh, some microfilms from J. Was it Hoover? Yeah. Yeah, he stole some uh, microfilms from Hoover. So he stole a bunch of intelligence secrets, and he was locked away. And he has no identity. Specifically in the system, they say, yeah, his name's John Mason, but uh, he doesn't have... The British disavowed him, uh, so he's been held without trial because he kind of doesn't exist. And you can really tie that in with the idea of the actual James Bond film and the theory that specifically... James Bond is not a person, but a code name. So if you look at it, you could make the argument that James Bond was caught, and that's why it transitioned to, you know, Lazenby and Moore and all that, because Sean Connery, as, you know, John Mason, James theory. Bond, was caught and brought in prison for 30 <laughs> it's great. years. It's yeah. great, isn't it? That's fantastic. So he gets disavowed, and then he ends up in fucking Alcatraz. That's awesome. Which, by the way, I love how much he escapes. Because he escapes with every fiber of his being at all times. He does not like being restrained. He's like, you know, mm, could you get these cuff off me? Yeah, this is a show of goodwill. Like, he doesn't even have an escape plan at that point. He just goes, 
I want to smash that mirror. I want to see who's watching me. Yeah, and I think, too, that's, like, about him sort of expressing this kind of raw power that he has. Um, Again, I mean, that ties back into the masculinity, uh, the constructions of masculinity that we've been talking about. But, like, that's also really very much about, you know, like, I could escape right now if I really wanted to, but uh, I just wanted to see who was behind this mirror. So there's a kind of, like, him always exerting control over whatever situation he's in and kind of flipping the script on people, which that's cool. I mean, that's the thing with for both of them when you look at it is they, um, for, I think Harris, uh, Ed Harris pl- kind of plays the mil- the career military man. He plays that kind of straight. It's right. about honor and restraint and discipline and all that. But when you look at Goodspeed and Mason, both of them perform masculinity in very different ways to what we expect. Uh, Stanley Goodspeed is just a nerd, but he takes control with his knowledge and also with his ability to communicate, you know, intensity to other people. You know, he, he manages to teach Mason how much is at stake. Uh, you know, he manages to handle the most dangerous stuff. But Mason also, he is not dangerous in the typical masculinity. He's not strong or particularly deadly. He, it's intellectual he power. Yeah. And he is, it's intellectual yeah. power. He's a force of will. And even like he, you notice that because he actually does lose a physical struggle. The, the guy yeah, who's on top of him in the laundry cart, he shoots that guy. But anyone he can get right. the drop on, he can kill because he understands violence. He is not the strongest. He is not the fastest. He is the deadliest because he is right. the most comfortable with violence. I mean, just look at how he throws Walmack over over the edge. He, he doesn't even hesitate. He just shake on it. Yeah, sure. Mm. Shake, zip, throw. You know, he, he is completely comfortable with death and violence. And I, I gotta say, I kind of wish, and that, that was one of those like little nitpicky concerns. It's like, yeah, Walmart lost that. Yeah. Wal- uh, Walmack lost that hand. There's no way. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's a fun 90s action movie. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> How's your bowling arm? It's just See, more uh, one-liners. So it's much so great. With this movie. Uh, yeah, and actually, you can kind of see that in uh, the car chase because there's actually some thematics to that. Because uh, Mason takes the Hummer. It's a big, confident machine that just barrels right through things. Mm. It does not stop for shit. It swerves to not hit an old lady, but generally speaking, anything that's material, right. it does not give a shit about. Meanwhile, uh, Goodspeed takes a Ferrari, which is like this symbol of coolness or affected coolness. It's you know it's the midlife crisis mobile, and he is going through a crisis. He's you know becoming a father and he's dealing with that. He's dealing mm. with this existential threat to his life, whereas he's kind of a boring office nerd. But you can see in the initial reaction when you know he takes the day off after almost dying is that. Life or death situations do not become him. Or, I mean, they do, but, like, it's not something he's used right. to. It's not something he particularly seeks out. So, you know, he he takes something that's fast and elegant and then trashes it because he's not he's not a cool guy. Mm. He's cool. Be- I mean, he is cool, but he's not, like, cool. And then, you know, he actually takes the dirt bike after that. He just steals it off, off that kid. And he doesn't even do anything with it. It's just... Something he does, but, like, that's the more practical, ugly vehicle 
and that kind of suits him a bit more almost. Yeah, and I think that suggests too that like <laughs> the Ferrari and the kind of like nasty bike that he steals, they're in a chain of substitutions. So like why would he choose those two vehicles? Um I think it's not just because of a midlife crisis, although I totally agree that that's what the red car is definitely doing. Uh it's ugh, dude, I said red. It's yellow. Uh, ugh, I'm not even thinking of well, that's what you think of when that's you think a of a really Ferrari. Good you point. think of a red Ferrari. I definitely remembered it as red, too, which should tell pretty much everybody about my memory, which is super great. Um, but so with this yellow Ferrari, I mean, that's also about intellectual power, too, right? So um, it's not necessarily that he's taken it because it's beautiful, although I will say that I think people will get out of the way for a Ferrari, or theoretically they would. It's also because it's super, super fast. Um, and, you know, like Nick Cage, super into cars, probably knows that. I'm sure he and Michael Bay <laughs> had probably had a conversation about that. Well, I mean, this the other thing. You can also see it in how they drive, particularly um, there's the only reason Goodspeed can keep up is because he doesn't drive right. like, you know, the Blues Brothers cruisers making jumps. He He's not following a pursuit vector. He actually sees, oh, there's a bunch of shit in the way. I'm going to turn left. I'm going to go through this garage, crash out the front. Right. He drives in an unorthodox right. way because he's seeing more than just a straight line. Mason is just stalling. He's actually making phone calls and stuff, so he's Intent. not actually yeah. driving with a specific right. destination in mind at first. He's just driving to get away. So, you know, it's actually a fascinating car chase because there's so Have much you ever more seen than Bullet? just a car chase going on. With Steve McQueen? Bullet. Okay, Maybe? so we need to watch so. Bullet with Steve McQueen no, because... That is the film that sets precedent for car chases, basically for the next 40 to 50 years. And I would argue it's still being used as kind of like the totemic car chase scene. In the same area of San Francisco, going down Knob Hill um, and doing those kind of Blues Brothers jumps that you were talking about. So Bay is drawing upon this longer history and visual culture of the car chase scene. He's tying Nick Cage to Steve McQueen through that. Um, Something which is going to be carried over later on in Gone in 60 Seconds as well, which is kind of fun. But we really need to check out Bullet because that is kind of like the Ur action movie of the late 60s that really gives a lot of these guys in the late 90s their great love for cars, car chases in general, and the idea of the rogue cop too. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say something? Just... The way you said it, it sounded like we needed to sit down with Steve McQueen and watch Bullet, and I would be Steve all into McQueen that. Steve McQueen is dead. I wish he was alive. I know. I do wish. Sigh. Can you tell us? Can you tell us about <laughs> Bullet, please, Steve McQueen? Yeah, man. Uh, uh, no, it's just because you said, you know, you know, we have to sit down and watch Bullet with Steve McQueen. Oh, Bullet with, okay, comma, yeah. with Steve McQueen. <laughs> yeah. No, that would be super cool, though. Um, uh, yeah. No. I don't, like I, I feel like we've kind of covered a lot of this movie. There, it, it's not that deep, but everything, every layer is so much. Yeah, fun. it is kind of like an onion in that aspect, I guess. I, yeah, I mean, another thing is there's also, I do like, and I know I say this about every fucking movie, but <laughs> there's there is kind of a two worlds things going on. There's that neon, almost like Blade Runner esque world of the command yeah. room. 
there's the darkness with the like Indiana Jones lighting of the tunnels. And then you have that really stark daytime up top. There's this kind of dimensionality, not dimensionality, there's like this separation of places. Mm. Visually, that I think works really well. And you kind of see these characters traversing through this world. And it's almost like, you know, the journey into hell and out. I was just going to say that. It's a little Campbellian. But, you know, in in such a vague and hard to define way that I don't want to call explicit reference to it. But you can see it. It's very subtextual in the way things are going. Um, Stanley starts Mm -hmm. in the day. Then, you know, goes into the nighttime. It goes on. Mason starts in the dark, comes out into the day, and then dives yeah. back in, and finally escapes into the day. And Hummel is just kind of trapped in an eternal twilight. Hummel is in this kind of interstitial space, um, which is also part of what I think makes him compelling as a villain. He doesn't fully... He, his character can't be separated out into light and dark, uh, like how it is for Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage... And that, that's compelling, because we don't know how to um, pin him down. We don't know how to, you know, like, taxonomize him. I like this idea about space, though, too, because I think that's also about hierarchy and where people fit within the command structure. Um, again, going back to kind of, like, shifting um, power roles, too, which is kind of fun. Um, Campbellian, perhaps. Dante-esque. Yeah. Very much mm, so. Yeah. <laughs> So, oh no! Think, 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 think about this way though. Think, think about the yeah. opening scene where they go to get the VX gas and they leave a yeah. man in hell. Yeah, yeah. Y- you get that. Also, you know where they store the VX gas? Where they store m- the majority of the warheads in the morgue, the place right. of the dead. Meanwhile, while they're diffusing all those chips, uh, can you do something about that guy? Is, you've been around a lot of cops. Is that normal? <laughs> Is he twitching like that? It's like, what do you want me to do? Shoot him again? There's a dead man who is undying yeah. in there. There's a There's lot a of like, just yeah. really cool little things, and I think that I think that's a little yeah. post hoc sure. justification, but it works. Yeah. It's death of the office. Dear Michael Bay, that is not a death threat. Don't well, sue yeah, us, please. that's not a death threat. Although um, the Transformers films are pretty like death of the authory. <laughs> I love the Transformers films, though they're trash. I, I kind of them. do too, unabashedly. Despite and despite all their problematics too, we should do a podcast where we just talk about Transformers films because there's so much going on in those films. Yeah, although I've realized now, I really want to see Pain and Gain because I just want to see Michael Bay and Harris again. Yes. Yes. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I have. Um, Is it good? Oh God, it's been so long since I saw it. I think. I remember it being kind of like, meh. It's sort of like in the in the middle. I have, a, admittedly, a soft spot for Anthony Mackie, who I think is wonderful, a great performer, also super hilarious. Um, holy crap. I've heard him on a couple podcasts just being hilarious. But he has this ability to create chemistry that's just, like, unparalleled. I would say see Pain and Gain for that. Um, watch the dynamics between these three guys. Again, it's a hyper-masculine film, but it's it's pretty enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. That should be fun. Oh, man. Uh, just this movie. It just... That's, that's the other really fun thing, is the pacing. It's just snap, snap, snap. I don't feel like there's any no. wasted moments, and... While it does slow down, it's like it never comes to a stop. Instead of like, you know, 
like if you picture this with the car metaphor, you know, it'll drift into a crawl, but it'll never fully hmm. stop. Like it, it'll be like you know, taking a curve and watching something happening, and then just drive off again. There's just action scene after action scene, and it's. Like, I, I, I feel like I'm doing some kind of disservice because I don't have anything really super critical to say about this. And, like, we, we've gone into some depth with this, but, like, the it, it's all, like, quick summaries and, like, little look at this thing. Like, I don't feel like we've had too much debate about this movie, which kind of sucks, but also, like, we do love this Yeah, movie and I think so it's a really much. important, like, urtext in terms of action films. Um, and I think that's part of where that's coming from is... The stuff that is debatable and very problematic is stuff that's fairly obvious. Um, so, yeah, I don't feel... And it's not particularly egregious for the yeah, year. Yeah, um... Not particularly... Like, we've seen oh, worse gay yeah, barbers. We've seen more helpless women. We've seen... Yeah, and lampshading. You know, like, everything it does, other people have done much, much worse. And I, I don't want to excuse what it's done, but, like... To me particularly, and also because it's something that I grew up with and I have a lot of fondness for, I find it very difficult to be that critical of it because, like, I can recognize those problems and, like, you know, it's it's the it's the lesser form of those problems, really. Yeah. It, it's not... It, I, I don't feel like there's ill will behind it. It feels you know? like there is an attempt being made to kind of shift the narrative a little bit to take it from gay folks... In particular, I'm singling those out because of the stylist again. From gay folks being the overt villain and kind of their villainy being them not being able to perform heterosexuality to um, not being able to perform heterosexuality as kind of uh, something potentially funny. Um, so, yeah, it's still problematic, but it's not quite what um, not quite what it was in the action genre beforehand. So there does seem to be some attempt to shift the narrative a little bit. Not very far, but a little bit. Actually, I do have one last deep cut I want to okay. make. And I've, I've briefly touched on this, but that is one of my favorite things about this movie is that violence is not the solution. No. Violence is explicitly an awful thing that is the cause of all these problems. War has caused a situation where you have these disavowed soldiers yeah. and almost going this. And the bloodlust, the shower scene is brilliant. Yeah. There's these spurts of blood. Yeah. There's these pools of blood. There's this chaos fire. And you have Ed Harris there as Hummel screaming, cease fire, and his men cannot hear him. It's such a striking and powerful scene. And mm -hmm. there are so many scenes that show, you know, blood as something awful that's happening. Bloodshed is not something that this movie... It, it, I mean, to a degree, it does indulge in it because it is an action movie, but it indulges in it, and it dares to look at the aftermath. Which is something that I feel like has kind of stopped happening in a lot of films, uh, specifically action movies now. I was just reading an article last night that was about gunfire and basically how film affects people's perceptions of what happens to your body when you get shot. Um... I feel like Bay is, like you're saying, like not willing to pull punches. Like, if he's given an R rating, he's going to do a hard R when it comes to violence. Uh, that seems to be going away. There's a lot of pushback against showing blood, against showing mangled bodies, which um, I understand, you know, like, don't want everybody to see that. 
But also, this is a great message that he's doing here. Violence does not work. It produces chaos. Yeah. Two things. Two things I want to bring up. Uh, one, I think there's a. I think it's a Patton Oswalt bit. I want to double it check is. this. So maybe if it's the one I'm thinking can, about. You know the yeah. one. Like, the one where it's like where his girlfriend. Sorry, where his wife can't watch the good, the bad, I the ugly. I think that's it. Like that. Yeah. I think so. Um, but then there's also, here's the thing. I've been teaching animation to kids lately and they're always excited to do fight scenes. That's something that they just gravitate yeah. towards. And here's the thing. I showed them one of my favorite fight scenes in animated history, which is the final fight in Sword of the Stranger, a film that I think we should do, we by the way. And here's the thing. I always remember the fights as being less bloody than they are, but kids are a lot more squeamish than I was at that age, or at least how I remember myself being. But they hesitate with they, they they started flinching just after the first like initial cut to the cheek and a little bit of blood wow. going on. And here's the thing. They I, I have had this discussion with them and they like mm. violence as long as it is free of consequence. As long as it's like just ah, here's these anime figures jumping and punching and yep. yelling. But when you show a very simple stabbing yeah. or just a single cut, like that repulses them. And this is kind of culturally how we treat violence all the time, is we like violence without exactly. blood. We like violence to be, like, we like violence to, I, I think that's actually kind of how you look at American gun violence yeah. in the film. It is almost like wushu cinema, where it's about right. spectacle. It's about how cool that headshot was, how they're moving around the columns, and how, like, they're sending people flying and all this. But we don't like seeing bodies. We like seeing people fall. We don't like keeping... We don't like looking at them long enough to realize that is a person who is dead. That is a person who has suffered, who has in, been inflicted pain upon. Right. Because that's what we don't like about violence. Right. And it, when it doesn't have that, violence feels very meaningless. Yeah, it feels extremely empty. Um, kind of like... And that also, for me, like... That makes it difficult for me to empathize with the actors because the stakes are somehow lowered despite not having blood, even when people are dying. So, yeah, there's just something so impactful about letting it be ugly, letting it be disturbing, and even letting it take the audience out of their suspended belief for a moment to create this kind of existential crisis. Like, I think that's okay. But also... There, 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 here's the thing there's blood but it's also not indulging in blood like something like Kill Bill, uh, yeah. Kill Bill or you know yeah. any fucking uh, Takashi right. Miike movie you know where it's just like blood for blood's sake the blood there's just enough that it's visible and it's present and it's yeah. practical but also it's not enough that it's unrealistic or that it's or gets you used to the sight of it you know, yeah no it, it's it's a very fine balance and I think that's something that we haven't really discussed in yeah. film. And I think that it, it, it's so hard to pull that off, but also it's completely yeah. invisible. Yeah. Anyways, I think that kind of wraps up. I think so. Day. Yeah. This is a brilliant movie. We both <sighs> fucking love it. Yeah, Go you see need to it. see the rock, guys. I do. If, if you like Nick Cage, see it. If you like Sean Connery, see it. If you like Michael Bay, see it. If you like Ed Harris, see it. You know, there's just, there's yeah. so much to love. And I am an unabashed fan of this movie. It is in my top three, I oh, think, yeah. definitely. Top five, yeah. please. I also don't like ranking movies, but also, you know, I love so Oh, yeah. Movies. Okay, anyways, 
This has been uh, this has been the Rock on the slab. I've been Silvio Emery. You guys can catch me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And I'm Andy Neller. And if you guys want to leave us comments, like you're just burdened with glorious purpose, um, you can send us a tweet at, at on the slab, or you can send us an email at ontheslabcast at gmail.com. You can come and like our Facebook page, or hell, if you are super excited by what we're doing then become one of our patrons on patreon you guys can find us at patreon.com slash on the slab thanks again for listening you guys bye